0: This podcast was brought to you by Salon London as part of our series for Latitude 2013. Neuroscientist Ian Robertson presents his study of power in the brain, the subject of his book, The Winner Effect. Thank you very much, Helen. Great, great uh, occasion. First time at a rock festival. And I met Dylan Moran coming in here. Um, I'm going to talk about the winner effect. And I'm going to start with a mystery. It's the mystery of the cichlid fish. I'm not going to tell you the solution to this mystery until the end of my talk. Cichlid fish comes in males and females. There's two types of males. There's Mr. N.T., who's the top, and Mr. T at the bottom. Mr. T is a swaggering, swashbuckling, raffish dog of a fish. He is sexually attractive. He's dominant. He's... uh, a great bully, his gonads are ten times the size of the NT fish, who, on the other hand, is infertile, submissive, uh, and indistinguishably colored from the, the women. So what's the mystery? You might think, here is evolution doing its job. the The fit shall survive and breed, and the unfit shall not. Surely this is what some eugenicists have been arguing for the human race. But Sometimes, something very, very strange happens. Sometimes, Mr. N.T. turns into Mr. T. in a period of 24 hours to 7 days. In all respects, behavior, Sexual attractiveness, body size, coloring, size of the gonads. What happens? Bear that in mind. We do have a prevailing assumption in humanity that we're born to win. That we have selective breeding going on, not just in animals but in humans, and people looking for the best matches for the sons and daughters. Dowries have been going on for centuries. So there is an assumption that we breed success. And indeed, you're seeing this in many parts of the world where the, the wealthy, the healthy, the athletically high prowess, the intelligence, all these things seem to go together. In these elite colleges in the United States, for instance. So I want to talk, however, about... This greatness, this success, this extreme success. I want to talk about egos, greatness, and God to try and probe this phenomenon. And I want to talk about the son of one of the most successful men in the world. This is Paolo Picasso, who was Pablo Picasso's son, who Pablo Picasso painted Paul as Harlequin here several times. Paolo had a miserable life. His father was incredibly successful but he was a, by all accounts a failure. He died a, a heavy drinker in his 50s. His own children were uh, miserable family circumstances they lived in his his own son Paolo's son Pablito little Pablo committed suicide 2 days after his grandfather's funeral. Why would you get such failure out of such success if born to win is true? Well, Marina Picasso, who was uh, Pablo Picasso's daughter by one of his marriages, in her autobiography she reports a conversation she overheard uh, between Pablo and his son Paolo when Paolo was already a father. And here's one of the quotes. You're incapable of looking after your children. You're incapable of making a living. You're mediocre and will always be mediocre. You're wasting my time. I am El Rey, the king, and you are my thing. Greatness does that to some people. It goes to their heads and makes them feel as if They are El Rey, the king. His staff, Pablo's uh, staff, called him the sun. John Paul Getty, the famous oil millionaire, believed himself to be a reincarnation of the emperor Hadrian. Extreme success has effects on the ego, can have effects on, on, on the ego, that makes you feel so special... That God must be involved. Could we play this? In the end, there is a judgment that, well, I think if you if you have faith about these things, then you realise that judgment is made by the people, um, so by. What do um, you mean by that? Sorry? I mean by the people. By if you believe in, in God, it's made by God as well. Tony Blair let slip to Michael Parkinson that he believed God was involved in the big decisions that he made. George W. Bush uh, confessed to the Palestinian leader that he thought God God had told him to invade Iraq, although that was later denied by the White House. But this is not a rare phenomenon. You have this tendency for people who have great success or great power for it to go to their heads. I was at Dartington Hall Literary Festival last weekend and I was on, met Jack Straw there. And he, he said to me, before you ask, he says, does power go to people's heads? He says, yes, it does. And it's a recognized phenomenon that People are changed by power, and great power, including great success, really inflates egos. And this can cause carnage in the world. Now, let's go back to Picasso and Picasso's son. What do I attribute my success in life to? And there's a wonderful psychologist called Carol Dweck in Stanford University. And she studies people's theories about their own intelligence or about their own personality. And she calls them, some of you here in this room will have an entity theory. That is, you will assume that your intelligence or your personality is a thing that's part of you. And some of you will think, That your intelligence or your personality is an interaction between a range of things. It's part of your interaction with the environment. And it turns out it matters a lot what theory you hold about your own abilities. For instance, if you hold a theory that your personality is a thing, for instance genetically determined that you have no control over, and you're an adolescent girl for instance in in school and you suffer rejection from some of the friends that you have there you're more likely to withdraw from further contact and become more isolated why? because if you are rejected then that becomes evidence that maybe I have a bad my concept of my own personality is bad is wrong because I can't change myself this is evidence that myself is flawed now you can if you just ask yourself this question do you think this is true people have a more or less fixed quota of intelligence and can't change that much there's a few more questions like that which if you subscribe to them means you hold an entity theory of intelligence. Twelve-year-olds going into high school in the States who hold entity theories about their intelligence, irrespective of the starting level of intelligence, progress significantly more poorly over the next 18 months in maths than those who hold a process theory. And the problem with having a father like Pablo Picasso is He had the ultimate entity theory of his own greatness. He was El Rey, he was the sun. But what actually does make a winner? What does make a winner? Ask yourself that. Of course talent plays a part. Native talent, genetic talent, Mozart, Hussein Bolt would not have become the fantastic achievers they were without some inherent talent. But if they didn't have the confidence to express that talent, it would never have been expressed. If they didn't practice for at least 10,000 hours, they would have no chance of that talent being expressed. If they were not able to persist through failure, that would never be expressed. And if they didn't have a lot of luck, then their success would not emerge. For every business man, and it's usually men, who... Believes that it's his unique set of godlike abilities that have made him the millionaire he is. There are a thousand other businessmen and women who are equally talented, possibly more talented, who put in more effort, but just that their product was just at the wrong time. There was just that they didn't have the, the the success. The, the the set of circumstances that can lead to business success, and that's true of most things. I am very lucky to have the opportunity to be talking to you here today. It's not because I have some brilliant writerly talent. I am just lucky to have a set of circumstances that's led to me to here, and that's true for most of you who feel successful. All of these things play a part. Yes, there is innate talent, but there's all of these factors, and it matters. It matters what you make of that, what theory you hold about that. And if you hold an entity theory about either your intelligence or your personality or your mood or whatever, it can act as a self-fulfilling prophecy particularly if you hit failure or setback. Because and this happens to children of an entity theory of intelligence they get marked wrong in a, a test and rather than that being, oh I got that wrong, that was a hard test The awful fear is, maybe I'm not bright. That's the fear. And that can sabotage further effort. And why was little Paolo Picasso such a failure? You cannot know, because there was all sorts of other circumstances. But what we do know, however, is that children of very successful parents... Can suffer from their parents hiding the ladder. Hiding the true nature of their success, which, yes, is partly uh, talent, but is partly effort, partly luck, partly confidence, partly practice. But the trouble with success, it goes to your, can go to your head to the extent that you don't like to be associated with grubby, ordinary things like luck and persistence. And 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 and, uh, and practice. So you want to be admired and loved for your innate uh, uh, brilliance. And Fiona Doherty um, coined this phrase, and she observed among contemporaries of ours how sometimes very successful parents had children who didn't thrive, who seemed to achieve an awful lot less than you would expect. And this this phenomenon of the theories that children hold about their parents' success influence their perception of whether they can achieve success themselves if he is El Rey how can I there's nothing I can do to become El Rey he's El Rey if he's the reincarnation of the Emperor Hadrian what can I do to become the Emperor no I can't his success is God given so that brings us on to power now Bertram Russell wrote a book a whole book on power And he said, the fundamental concept in social science is power in the same sense in which energy is a fundamental concept in physics. Now, here's a little exercise for you. Can any of you think of a boss in whom power went to his or her head? Put up your hands if you can. Yeah. I want you to think, did these apply to your boss? Did they seem to become more pushy? selfish. Did they s- seem to develop a taste for having an impact on people, whether by shocking them, surprising them, frightening them, or even making them grateful. Then, how, who, does that ring bell for anyone? Put up your hand if it rings bell. Yeah. Yeah. Sees others in terms of their usefulness to them. Yeah? You can shout out yes, yeah, just a tunnel vision. Sexually primed. Or these. Hypocritical, applying different standards to themselves and to others. Yeah? Yeah? Difficulty in seeing others' points of view. Okay? Disinhibited, for instance, insensitive, insensitive making would be jokey comments that are not funny if you're the lower down the pecking order. Or incompetent in bullying. Okay? All of these are documented effects on behavior. Of even tiny amounts of power allocated in experimental situations for temporary periods of an hour. Just if I split you into groups of three, and said I'm giving you this task to solve. I want you to come up with a set of proposals for sorting out global warming, uh, and we're going to rate the quality of your proposals. Um, so, but this um, this chap here, you're going to be the leader of your group, and you're going to be rating everyone's else in the group, the quality, you're going to be scoring their proposals and then reading out the scores. That small amount of power given to you would produce egocentricity. Um, You would produce uh, a tendency to see people in terms of usefulness to you Would tend to make you a little bit more hypocritical. All of these are documented effects of small amounts of power. On the other hand, can any of you think of a boss who seemed to de- grow into the position and develop a strategic vision, seeing the wood better than the trees, who seem to become more decisive and goal-focused, who seemed to develop a healthy appetite for risk, seemed to handle stress better, became smarter, upbeat, bold, inspiring. These are the features of good leaders. And these are also effects of power on the brain. How can we get this two edged sword, this negative effects of egocentricity, treating people like objects, and then positive effects like this? So, come back to that in a moment. In the meantime, an experiment. People in this side of the room, I would like you to adopt the trainee assistant manager pose. Occupy as little space as you can. People to the left of this poll. CEO pose. OK? <laughs> Occupy space. OK? And c- hold these poses until I come back to this slide. Now, Mike Tyson served three years in prison, during which time Frank Bruno took the WBC championship. Mike Tyson emerged from jail three years of bad food and fluorescent lights a bit of a mess so what does a boxing promoter like Don King do to get Mike Tyson back his championship tomato cans he needs some tomato cans Not the food, not the vitamins. This is his first tomato can. This was Peter McNeely, a Boston Irishman. And here we have the the match in Las Vegas a few months after Tyson was out of prison. If you could, um, Dickon, could you put that on? Thanks. Now Peter, his son, fights... Peter, we have you for just a moment before you go out into the ring. Your thoughts before you get in with Mike Tyson. This is for my grandfathers, my grandmothers, my father, my mother, Curly, my three brothers, last but not least, Snobby. Look at the past few months, and here we go. And McNeely, as advertised, comes right at Mike Tyson. Down goes McNeely! Okay, that was his first tomato can. 89 seconds, it lasted. His second one was a few months later in Philadelphia, in the winter. Buster Mathis Jr. Lasted three rounds, but he was demolished. This is called the winner effect, because another three months later, he went on to demolish Frank Bruno and take back the championship. What were these two tomato cans and how did they work? Why is it that getting a couple of fights against no-hopper opponents, why should that make it more likely that you win the big fight against a tough opponent? Well, it turns out that this is a, a phenomenon across all species. If you get two mice to fight and you drug one of them so he's a weak opponent and the other mouse wins he's more likely to win a subsequent bout against a really tough opponent. So what makes the winner effect? Winning. Success makes success. It's in the Bible. It's in Matthew. To them that hath shall be given, to them that hath not, shall be taken away, even that which they hath. So let's try and work out what's happening here. Why should we get tomato cans helping you to regain the championship? Could we Dickon, Could we have that? Thanks. Oh, sorry, just before you put that on. This is a famous, famous World Cup soc- soccer final between Brazil and Italy, 1994. And it's coming to the final shot that will keep in the penalty shootout of the final where if Roberto Baggio gets this shot, then the Italy have not lost. They can go on to the next two penalty shots. So this is a critical shot of the tournament. And there's 200 million Brazilians watching and 70 million Italians watching. Let's see what happens. And Roberto Baggio. The pressure is on him. He has to make it. He has to make it. Here we have Roberto Baggio. And look at the positions of these two teams. Now, a group of researchers in Atlanta, Georgia, were a brilliant idea. They found a group of Brazil fans in a sports bar and a group of Italian fans in a pizzeria before the game. And they took saliva samples before and after. What they found was, among the Brazil fans, now think, this was a sample of fans, but you're talking 100 million people, what they found was the testosterone levels went up dramatically as a result of vicarious winning. The poor old Italians, their testosterone levels went down. This was one of the biggest pharmacological experiments ever done. You've just changed the biologies of the brains of 100 million people in, in Brazil and similarly in Italy. So why, how does this help us with the winner effect and explaining the winner effect? well, Testosterone, which in both men and women is increased by competition and success. So all of you in this room, if I set you, gave you all computers and I said I want, I'm setting a competition how fast you can press the button to, uh, and as uh, competing with each other, all of you would experience a rise in testosterone as a result of the contest, in response to the contest. And the more your testosterone rises, the greater your chance of winning. This, in turn, increases levels of a chemical messenger in the brain that's critical for your emotional and cognitive functioning called dopamine. And one of the critical effects of dopamine is that it makes you feel good when dopamine activity and the reward network in the brain, deep in the middle of the brain, there's a single feel-good circuit called the reward network. And every time you get a pay rise you eat a piece of really nice chocolate, you have a pint of lovely Adnams beer, you take cocaine or you have sex, or you get power, the good feeling that you get from that is mediated by increased dopamine-related activity in the reward network. So winning feels good for most people, success feels good, and it changes the chemistry of your brain. And it makes it more likely you will win again because of these changes in your brain. In animal research, what winning does is to increase the receptors, the number of receptors, the receiving stations in your brain for testosterone, so that when Mike Tyson beat Peter McNeely, that success experience would increase his testosterone, yes, temporarily, but it wouldn't stay high, but his brain would be left with more receiving stations for testosterone. So that when he next went to fight Buster Mathis, and that testosterone for the competition came on, it would have a bigger effect. And what's the effect? More aggression and more motivation. But dopamine also affects the functioning of the front part of your brain, and it can make you smarter. The present Irish Prime Minister, Enda Kenny, was a, an abysmal performer as head of opposition. And they tried to get rid of him shortly before the election. He's become palpably smarter, being in power. He's become a good leader, confident and visionary. So that kind of explains the two-edged sword. It m- makes you... Bad in some ways, socially, and good in others. Why? Well, dopamine, like many of the other chemical messengers in the brain, has an inverted U-shaped function. Too little and you underperform. Too much and you underperform. And you have a Goldilocks zone in the middle where your brain just acts very sweetly. So if some people, given power, really rise to the occasion and it changes them, it makes them better in all sorts of ways, and that's what how it evolved, our response to power, because we need leaders. We're a group species. We need people who, been, who are able to see the wood rather than the trees. Because one effect of power is to make you think more abstractly and strategically. If you're the general or a leader, you can't be empathic of every indiv- individual or else you couldn't make any decisions. So you have to adopt the broad view. And that is a result of biological changes in the brain caused by partly the dopamine activity that's caused by the increase in testosterone that comes with the increased power. But the problem is when people go over the other side, because too much power distorts your functioning. And I'm going to come on to that in a moment. So let's think about the financial crash, because you here you're the masters of the universe with limitless power, able to, to uh, trade the economies of whole nations in a, in a, a matter of minutes with vast eye-watering profits. So what's this got to do? Can we explain this kind of success and power? Well, John Coates from Cambridge did a beautiful study, 2007, just before the crash, of traders in a a, a London bank. And every morning he went in at 11 o'clock, and he measured their, took saliva samples, and then he looked at their profit or loss on that day. What he found was their level of testosterone at 11 o'clock in the morning predicted their profits that day, more testosterone, bigger profits. So, not only does success breed success, but it gives you a more appetite for success, and you're willing to take higher risks. So, Fred Goodwin, when he bought, became the biggest, he was the head of the biggest company of the world by value, Royal Bank of Scotland, after they bought part of ABN Amro. And this brave commentator from Dresdner, Kleinwart Wasserstein, wrote before the House of Cards fell down, some of our investors think Sir Fred is a megalomaniac who cares more about size than shareholder value. One of the cowed board members anonymously afterwards said, it was as though he was saying the emperor had no clothes. We all knew that, but no one dared say it. So... um. What, what does, how does this happen? Well, let's just think about money for a moment. And This was a wonderful study done in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences States. A very good journal. The authors got into terrible trouble because it was publicly funded research and they found something rather unsavory about a, about a certain aspect of American culture. They studied a pedestrian crossing and they looked at, with someone waiting to cross whether cars stopped or not to let them cross, as they should according to the highway code. And what they did was they coded the value, approximate value of the car. And what they found was that the bigger the car, the less likely they were to stop. They also found at a junction where you had to, people had to give way to each other and there wasn't a rule of the road, the big cars straight through, I'm sure you've all seen it. And they also found that the wealthier people were, the more likely they were to feel themselves not bound by ethical or legal constraints, they were more likely to um, subscribe to dodgy practices, because they felt like Pablo Picasso, they feel themselves above the law, because they're so special, they're made special by the money they have, and the wealth, and status. But this wasn't true of all of them, and it wasn't because of the wealth itself. Let me just get, before I explain what it was mediated by, let's have a clip of this video. Greed is good, for lack of a better word. Greed, no, it's it's not, people in the audience are saying. Well, it it is. Greed is selfish. I, I would argue that greed is a good thing. Greed is never bad. Greed saves lives. When you have companies, businesses, who are greedy inherently, looking to make a profit, they're designed to build better products, to create better services. That all benefits me and benefits you, benefits everybody. It wasn't wealth itself it was mediated by the extent to which you subscribed to the notion that greed is good. You could be wealthy, but not accept that value that greed is good, and it wouldn't shape your behaviour in the way I've described. You would be left. You would not be more likely if you get rid of the effects of your commitment to greed as a value. Then the size of your card does no longer predicts whether you will uh, cross at the crossing, or will not predict whether you will subscribe to dodgy practices or not. So greed is the villain here. So greed, what is greed? Greed is not good, because what greed is, is mainlining into the rewards network of the brain. And there's a relatively limited number of things that can do this. Drugs like cocaine, heroin, sex, gambling, money, and power, because of their reinforcement value, they can have exaggerated and very great sudden influxes to the, of, of, of activity in the reward network to the extent that they stimulate appetites that can never be satisfied. And all of these, gambling addiction, which involves no drugs, is as, can be as strong a compulsion and difficult to break as heroin addiction. And that's because of the grip it takes on the rewards network of the brain. And power and money can have similar effects. Okay. I um, Regret to say, and please don't sue me, I've lowered your testosterone levels in this side of the room. And you owe me something because I've raised your testosterone levels on this side of the room. Simply by your posture. Beautiful research by Donna Carney showing that tricking people into adopting a power pose, pretending you're looking at their blood pressure, but simply adopting the trappings of power or status or dominance tricks your brain into thinking you are dominant. And increases your testosterone levels significantly. Makes you feel in charge. Makes you feel bolder. That's why fake it till you make it works. And this is a very important point for uh, education, for going for job interviews, for doing things that make you nervous. If you adopt the trappings as if you were a dominant, in-control, powerful person, you will actually trick the brain into mirroring that biochemically. And it happens in both men and women. And here we see a nice example of a dominant woman uh, adopting the dominant pose against uh, a man who is lowering his testosterone. So what about the need for power? We had that lovely talk by Kevin Dutton earlier about psychopaths. And I'm not talking about psychopaths here. But just as there is a variation in uh, tendency to, to, uh, for any human uh, variables like psychopathy or introversion, extroversion, so in this room you will have a different levels of a number of basic motivations. There are three, according to the great psychologist David McClellan, there are three basic motivations, largely unconscious. It's very hard for us to know what ours are. For affiliation, that is to be liked by other people. For achievement, that is to achieve recognition um, and to achieve goals. And for power, which is defined as having impact over other people, control over the resources that other people want or need. These are largely unconscious. And if you want to know what your level or these are, you probably have to ask other people rather than answer a questionnaire yourself. And the appetite for power is linked to the appetite for dominance. And the interesting thing is, for people with a uh, high power need, who enjoy controlling resources that other people want or need, losing is stressful for them. So if you've set up a competition, a computer reaction time game, if they lose, they're stressed out, even though you've, 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 you've um, arranged it randomly, who will win or lose. And their cortisol levels, cortisol is a stress hormone, will go up. But if you're a person with low power need, actually winning can be stressful for you, and your cortisol levels can go up. So for some people who lack the killer instinct, who don't, can't nail that squash match or that tennis match, for them there may be an unconscious fear of being dominant, which, which leads to an increase in cortisol, which can interfere with cognitive functions and, and the coordinated functioning in a sport. So it matters what our need for power is, and we need leaders and CEOs and politicians and headmasters and headmistresses Who've got a healthy appetite for power, but not too great an appetite for power. Now, you can you can you can indirectly measure someone's need for power by measuring studying their language. And an uh, American political scientist called Dyson studied Blair's language and Prime Minister's questions, and he looked for the extent to which there was a need for power communicated in the, the phrasings of his sentences concern with reputation, concern with impact, etc. What he found was, compared to other 50 other international national leaders, Tony Blair had a very significantly higher level of need for power compared to other politicians. Interestingly, um, the, uh, the Japanese Prime Minister, who resigned suddenly in 2008 for stress-related reasons, seemed to have found... Power too stressful, because with power comes great responsibility and great stress. The good thing is, power is an antidepressant because of its effects on the dopamine system. It increases mood and reduces anxiety. Um, However, if you don't have enough of a hit from the power, the stress of leadership will overwhelm you. That happened to uh, Mr. Abe, but he is now back as uh, I don't know what he did or what he took. He's now back as Japanese Prime Minister. Now, uh, Lord David Owen, former uh, Foreign Secretary, has developed a a checklist, a proposed medical diagnostic system for people, uh, leaders, whether or not they've succumbed, whether or not power has gone to their head. And his checklists include this. So, The leaders develop a narcissistic view of the world as an arena in which to exercise power and seek glory. They become very concerned about enhancing their own image. They develop a messianic manner. They begin to identify themselves with the organization or the country as if they're the same thing. Je suis la France. Après moi, le déluge. They speak in the third person or use the royal we. Margaret Thatcher began to do that. They develop excessive confidence in their own judgment. This close senior advisor of Tony Blair told me personally, who was very defensive of him when I was critical, and the only he said the only thing is it's his certainty, it's his certainty, and he was d- disturbed by this Tony Blair's certainty, and that's excessive confidence in his own judgment, a belief of being accountable to history or God. I showed you the video at the beginning for Blair; that's clearly true. Um, a loss of contact with reality, often progressive isolation. That seemed to happen to Tony Blair and to Margaret Thatcher. Restlessness, recklessness, impulsiveness. A tendency to allow the broad vision to obviate the need to consolidate practicality of, of outcomes. And what's called hubristic incompetence, which I can only say is a best description of the Iraq war I've seen. So let's have a little clip of a video here. We watched as he berated his own press secretary and stormed out of our interview because he didn't like one of the questions. What was unfair? So, Sarkozy, uh, Nicolas Sarkozy, also very dramatically succumbed to the hubris syndrome, almost certainly. And that's one reason why he, the, the, the misjudgments he made As a result of the distortion of his judgment and of his cognitive functions that came from putatively overstimulation of the reward network leading to distortion of thinking led to him uh, not having a second office, a second term in office. Now, finally, I mentioned about the reward system being linked to sex, alcohol, drugs, power, money. Henry Kissinger famously said sex is an aphrodisiac. And we certainly see uh, many examples of this, um, <coughs> because uh, people um, senior, the more senior you are, uh, the more greater your status. Powerful people have more uh, relationships, have more um, uh, affairs, uh, because the upregulation of that reward network leads to not just a greater appetite for more power but greater appetite for more sex as well. Um, now, a postscript here. You, you may think that power is a bad thing. It's not. Power is a necessary fuel for leadership and for human beings to work together. And it turns out, the great McClellan showed, there are two types of power motivation called P-power and S-power. All of us who have power get a bit of a kick ego wise in having power there is a personal satisfaction and motivation there but some of us also have an S power motivations, consider that to be social power, that is you want power in order to better things for other people and you can measure this in the language of people, um, I-, I won't go into the how you do that now so people have a mix some people have a lot everyone has some P power but people have a mix of S power motivation and it turns out that if you have S power motivation to some extent it reduces the effects of the dopamine rushes in the reward network and reduces the, the hit the main lining into your reward network and I'll just come back to that in a moment but women in this room, on average, you'll have higher levels of S-power than men. There are plenty men with high levels of S-power, but women are slightly more protected, not by no means completely protected against the corrupting effects of power because they're more likely to have a social motivation that can temper the biological effects of the P-power. And that's why we need many more women in senior positions in all realms of life. We need more men who have a healthy uh, uh, power motivation, that is a mix of P and S power as well. And we heard in the previous talk from Kevin Dutton about the problem of psychopathy and the fact that success is often achieved by the very uh, features that can em- you know, show themselves in P power. And very worryingly, when they took a group of American business students, MBA students and they recreated the Cuban Missile Crisis and they gave them scenarios Here are the, here's the facts of what was happening then, what, sh- what steps should we take now should we respond to the shooting down of the U-2 plane with military action what they found was the people who had low levels of S power and high levels of P power were, were strongly advocating steps that would have led to nuclear holocaust and and the the ruination of the western world. Um, And if it wasn't, and most of the people in that uh, missile, in that control room in the White House, if it wasn't for the two Kennedy brothers, that would have happened. So, back to the cichlid fish. Why does Mr. N.T. turn into Mr. T, and what on earth has this got to do with everything I've been talking about? Well, Here's why. Mr. N.T. is indistinctly colored. Mr. T. is brightly colored. So he's more vulnerable to be plucked by a a gull from the Lake Tanganyika. He's called T. Fish because he has territory. Mr. N.T. Fish is swimming by and suddenly he sees empty territory. He goes into the territory and merely having territory causes within 24 hours completed in 7 days a biological transformation and a psychological transformation in every respect so this is a classic example of how our place in a social hierarchy affects our biology of course this doesn't apply to humans of course it does Oscar winners live 4 years longer on average than Oscar nominees that would be the increase in the lifespan you would get if you cured all cancers for all, ki- all time. Nobel Prize winners live a year and a half longer than Nobel nominees. It's nothing to do with money. It's to do with the equivalent of territory, but it's psychological territory, it's status. You're taken out of the rat race if you get a Nobel Prize or an Oscar. You no longer have to prove yourself. So, finishing off here, Here's the uh, American edition of my book. Here's the Dutch edition. Here's the cute British Irish edition. And here's the uh, German ed- edition, which conveys there are a whole other story about cultural attitudes to power as well. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you Ian, that was amazing and I hope everyone's learnt something about themselves and their relationship with power Um, We do have time for a couple of questions if that's ok Has anyone got any questions for Ian? So we've got one there and one there Okay, I think that's going to be it What do do you do if you've got one of these really high P um, high power bosses to protect yourself or stay sane? So, uh, Primo Levi, Primo Levi, in his book about his books about being in the concentration camps, his, his what he says is you have to. The guards saw you as an object. You're, there was no empathy. So to survive, you you had to find a way of, of making them see you as a human being. Sometimes, so you have to counter that try and find ways of them seeing you as a human being. How you do that is, would be one way. But the only other real way of constraining power is governance, good governance. Democracy, the artifacts of democracy, um, elections, free press, independent judiciary, were invented because people saw what happened to people's brains with power and saw what, the, what chaos it can cause. So that's the beauty of democracy. But constraints... And good governance, so a good board, a good board chairman. Some of the American companies now have 360 degree assessments. And some of them, like Microsoft in Dublin, for instance, apparently if you know, the, those at the bottom 10% get kicked out. But 360 degree assessments are an incredibly important way of constraining power as well. So it has, I think it has to be systemic. It's quite difficult for an individual to manage someone. Thanks. My, my question's really kind of the reverse of that. I work in the health service, and one of the big issues has been a lot of scandals, um, both in learning disabilities and general areas. Um, how do you kind of protect people against the um, P-power situation or recognising colleagues or, or, or nursing staff or staff generally? So that's a very good question because, you know, you don't have to be a CEO to have power. You, you can be a nursing assistant running a ward and uh, you, have the, you have more power, probably, than a CEO. And that can corrupt just as much as CEO power can. So what do you do about that? Well, in my book, The Winner Effect, I do recommend that we need to, as we did with sexism, uh, Germaine Greer's book brought s- sexism onto the agenda. What, the way men behaved and thought in the 1970s, that seemed perfectly normal then, is no longer acceptable certainly in modern Western countries. So there's been a consciousness raising that it become you're making something that was unconscious conscious and all the implicit biases. I think we have to do the same about power, that we have to become aware of it and aware of it in everyone, in the most lowly of positions, so that it's something and build awareness so that colleagues will be able to articulate when they see a pattern of behaviour. And you get it becoming, and that's, that's the way, again, it's a systemic approach, I think. The Winner Effect is published by Bloomsbury Publishing, and you can find out more about Salon London at www.salon-london.com.